Well, I'm here today to talk to you about Genesis and the Christian faith, and I subtitled this The Seven Seas of History. Uh, what the seven seas are, just to give you a big picture, they're milestones throughout the Bible. So in essence, what we're going to do is we're going to go through the whole Bible in one lecture. You want to do that? You want to see me talk fast? That's how you do it, right? But you know what? There's a problem today, isn't there? There's a problem in today's culture. I mean, we look out there and we say, what's going on? Look at the London Zoo. They put people on display. And they sit there and they tell people, hey, you're, you're no different from the animals. That's what they're trying to teach people. And it's sad to see so many kids that see displays like this and they're just uh, in shock going, wow, look at that, we're just an animal. I can't believe this. Well, you know what? That's a moral problem, isn't it? It's a moral problem in today's culture. But you know what? Take a look at this quote from uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. You guys familiar with Jeffrey Dahmer? He was a terrible mass murderer. I don't even want to talk about some of the things that he did. But look what he said. If a person doesn't think there's a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought anyway. I always believed the theory of evolution is truth, that we all just came from the slime. When we, when we died, you know, that was it. There was nothing. You know what? He was living his life the way he had been taught, wasn't he? And, you know, we see these moral problems, and, you know, we can list moral problems uh, one after another, whether it's abortion, homosexual behavior, whatever it might be that's going on in today's culture. And, friends, we oftentimes battle over that morality. But I want you to realize that's a battle up here. We need to start looking down here closer to the foundation. When it comes down to it, the, the, this battle over two different moralities come from two different theologies, which come from two different histories. But ultimately, they have two different authorities holding them up. In other words, either God is the ultimate authority or man is the ultimate authority. Who's the ultimate authority? There is no greater authority than God, is there? He is the ultimate authority on every single subject. When it comes to history, when it comes to theology, when it comes to morality, whatever it is, God is the ultimate authority. But we're in a culture today where people have rejected God as being the ultimate authority. By default, who becomes the authority if God's not the authority? Mankind becomes the authority. See, man is elevated to that position of authority. That's the religion of humanism, that man determines truth apart from God. We might hear that as secular humanism. There's a whole variety of, uh, of uh, humanistic worldviews, be it evolution, uh, uh, naturalism. You might think of empiricism, things like that. Those are all aspects of the religion of humanism. And we're seeing a battle here, and a lot of times we battle over the morality. Sometimes we battle over the theology. Well, you know what? We also battle over the history. And that's where it really gets down to Genesis 1 to 11, doesn't it? Boy, we see battles over that. But friends, I want you to remember that it's always a battle over authority. God is the authority or man is the authority. And that's where the foundation of this is. Now, what breaks my heart, though, is I've seen many Christians start adopting this other history and try to bring it over here. They try to mix the two histories. What they're doing is they're trying to mix the two authorities in one sense. What we need to do is step back and say, hey, let's get back to the Bible. Let's let God be the authority on every subject and especially our history. What we need to do is stop compromising the Bible's history with a false history. Now, to do that, we need to know the Bible's history. I take it you all have the Bible memorized. Is that right? <laughs> no. But you know what? I, I, you know, I've actually uh, talked to some people who have the Bible, for the most part, memorized. But you know what? There's two different views of history here. And what we're going to do in this talk is we're going to go through that history from the beginning all the way to the end. And I want you to look at the big picture. According to the Bible, the Bible's history leads up to the cross. And we as Christians have something to look forward to. Amen? Yeah. But you know what? If you reject that, what history do you have? A history of millions and billions of years of death, pain, struggling, suffering, extinction, and all it ends in is death. You look forward to nothing. You see, this is a battle over two different histories. But I suggest we can trust God in every single area. Did God create everything? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Does God know everything? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Colossians 2.3, uh, in the context of Christ, uh, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wow. Has God always been there? Yeah, absolutely. Revelation 22, 13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the beginning. He is the end. He's always been there. Hey, can God lie? No, not at all. Titus 1, 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time again. You know what? It would be crazy for me as a Christian not to start with the word of God when I look at anything. There is no greater authority than God. In Hebrews, it talks about uh, uh, when, when the Lord swore to Abraham, he swore by himself because there is nothing greater. 
God is the ultimate authority, and we can trust the Bible when it comes to history. We sometimes say here at the ministry that the history, uh, the Bible is the history book of the universe. Now, it's not a complete history. It is a selected history, but it is enough to get us a big picture look at the Bible's past as well as the Bible's future, doesn't it? And what we've done at the ministry is we've broken uh, the Bible down into what we call the seven seas of history. That's not to be confused with the Mediterranean Sea, the Aegean Sea. No, no, no. Uh, You know how pastors... They have a tendency, you know, you go through a sermon and everything starts with the same letter. (laughs) Yeah, we do the same thing. (laughs) The seven C's of history. It starts at the beginning with creation and it ends with consummation, the fulfillment of all things. So with the beginning of the Bible, the end of the Bible. Now, there's some relationships here between these. Let me just introduce what they are. Uh, There's creation. There's the corruption. And we'll talk about this in more detail. There's the catastrophe of the flood of Noah's day. There's the confusion at the Tower of Babel. Then we have Christ stepping into history, his work on the cross, and a final fulfillment or the consummation. Now, there's a relationship here. I don't know if you noticed, uh, on our illustration, we cleverly draw these sometimes. Notice how it's white on one side and it's black on the other. You see, white is the perfect state in one. says, remember, creation was perfect. Ah, it's kind of in white. You know the fulfillment? New heavens and the new earth? You know it's going to be perfect again. So notice the relationship there. But, but notice also here the corruption. Genesis chapter 3, when the world went from a perfect state to an imperfect state. You know what? That's why Christ went to the cross. But also look at the catastrophe. Look at the relationship we see here. The Lord shut the door. The Lord provided a means of salvation from the flood. And Christ is our means of salvation, you see. Wow. He is the door. It's exciting to see some of the connections in here. Of course, we could talk about this stuff for days and days. But let's go ahead and jump in to these seven seas of history to teach you the Bible's history from start to finish. The first sea of creation. How many days did God create? Six days, and he rested on the seventh. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light. There was light on the first day. There was water. The Lord was hovering over the waters. Day two, we have the expanse or sky or firmament, uh, oftentimes seen as the atmosphere and uh, perhaps a little bit more. Uh, Day three, we have the dry land and plants. Day four, uh, we have the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, flying and sea creatures. Finally, on day six, land animals and mankind. That's uh, man and woman. God created both on the first day. That's the first marriage, as a matter of fact. Right there. God gave dominion to man and woman in Genesis chapter 1. Look at this. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Incredible. In the image of God. We are made in the image of a logical, truthful God. Makes sense why we can do logic. Why we understand that truth exists. But you know what? In a materialistic universe, you know one of those humanistic worldviews where they say there is nothing immaterial? Why can logic exist? It's not material. Ah, you don't have the mass of a law of logic, do you? No, not at all. You see, we're made in the image of a logical God. That's why we can do that. So how long were these six days? You know, if we turn to other pages of Scripture, it tells us. Exodus 31 says it's six days. Exodus 20, verse 11 this is part of the Ten Commandments that God directly that He knew it was going to be a controversy, didn't he? For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. For in six days. You know, the, under, the Israelites understood this as six normal length days, and you rest for a seventh day. Did you know that? They didn't say, hey, let's, re- let's, let's work for six million years and rest for a million years. He didn't say that, did they? That'd be terrible being born on a Tuesday. <laughs> Telling you. Well, I've had people say, okay, okay, six days. How long ago were those six days? Was that millions of years ago? Was it billions of years ago? Was it 80 years ago? Well, how about we do a short estimate? The earth was created on day one. Adam was created on day six. So you have about five days in between there. Now, if you add up from Adam to Abraham, and most people can do that. That's in Genesis chapter five. In Genesis chapter 11, you get somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2,000 years. Now, if you wanna take on the task of adding up from Abraham to Christ, be my guest. Boy, that's where chronologists really love to fight. There's some places where it's not straightforward to calculate, and boy, they really go at each other. But most scholars, whether Christian or secular, agree that Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Christ, which is about 4,000 years ago. So from a rough estimate, you get about 6,000 years. Now, I was not one of the guys who stayed up late reading the begats. I mean, that's better than counting sheep, let's face it. You start doing begats, you're out. Some people, I'm sure, stayed up late, got excited about it. Arguably the most popular was Archbishop James Usher. He wrote a book called The Annals of the World in 1658. 
And he arrived at the age of the earth at 4004 BC, which is about 6,000 years ago. More recently, Dr. Floyd Nolan Jones uh, wrote a book called The Chronology of the Old Testament. He also arrived at 4004 BC. Now, they don't agree on every single point, but for the most part, they're in general agreement. Now, there's a misconception. I've had some people say, well, you know, nobody believed in a really, really uh, young uh, universe or young earth, you know, until Usher came around and put those dates on there. False. There have been a whole host of chronologists in Christendom for the past 2,000 years that have added up those chronologies and arrived at dates. One of them, I don't know if you guys can read this uh, from there, uh, Julius Africanus, one of the church fathers. Uh, he, he did this about 240 AD. So a whole host of people have done this, and they're all in general agreements. For the most part, uh, if you were to average it out, it was about 4,045 BC, uh, just with the numbers that I put together on here. And of course, I'm sure there's others that I haven't been able to tally. But this creation, in six days, was a perfect creation. Do we, ex we expected a perfect creation, right? It's a perfect God, we expect a perfect creation, right? Deuteronomy 32, four says, he is the rock, this is speaking of God. His works are perfect. Wow, well that's exactly what we got, wasn't it? A perfect creation. At the end of the sixth day, look what God said. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. In Hebrew, this is exceedingly good. It exceeded good if such a thing were possible. It really was a perfect world. How many people here have a perfect marriage? Some of you guys knew what to say right away. Uh-huh. You know, in a perfect world, Adam and Eve were created. It was a perfect marriage. It really was. But you know what? Everything was perfect. The animals weren't dying. There was no cancer. I mean, it really was a very good and perfect world. You know, that's tough to imagine because we've been stuck in a sin-cursed world for so long, right? You know, the two verses right before Genesis 1.31 points out that uh, mankind was originally a vegetarian. All the animals were vegetarian. Animals were not even eating other animals. It really was a perfect world. Now, I know what you're thinking. Are we supposed to be vegetarian? Genesis 9.3, after the flood, that's when God first permitted man to eat meat. It says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. And this is why some people eat liver. I'm not one of them. My mother loves liver. She'd try to cook it for me all the time. She'd say, oh, here's some liver. I, I don't like liver, Mom. And she said, here, let me put some onions on it. That'll make it better. Oh, you got to be kidding me. That, that was a terrible thing. Oh, makes you wonder if, it, if the forbidden fruit would have been forbidden liver. Nobody would have ever eaten it. <laughs> well, to summarize the creation... It explains why we have dominion over the earth. Because God gave man and woman dominion in Genesis chapter 1. It explains why marriage exists. Wonderful doctrine, isn't it? It explains that God created everything in six days. It explains why we work and why we rest. And it explains why we can do logic and reasoning. You know, it also explains marriage, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really does. It explains why we wear clothes. That's in Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? I appreciate you all adhering to the doctrine of uh, clothing today. Yeah, you don't know how bad I do. Well, what happens? Did Adam and Eve remain in the Garden of Eden? No, something happened. In fact, the whole world's changed, hasn't it? And that brings us to a command here. In Genesis chapter two, verses 16 and 17, it says, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and, good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You see, the punishment for sin is death. Is sin serious? Absolutely sinister. How many sins did Adam and Eve commit to get kicked out of the Garden of Eden and sentenced to die? Only one. They exceeded the sin limit, if it were. But, but notice the big picture theology of what's going on. The punishment from an infinite God is an infinite punishment, right? And that's going to come into play. But see, Adam and Eve sinned against God. And that brings us to our second sea in history, the corruption when the world went from a perfect state to an imperfect state. You see, Adam and Eve were not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I throw this illustration up here. This comes from our children's book, A is for Adam. I love this book. And uh, Dan Letha, uh, the same artist who does the uh, After Eden illustrations, he drew this one. And a lot of times, we as uh, uh, Answers and Genesis speakers, you know, there at the ministry, we love to comment on this. And I'm gonna use this to dispel a myth. How many people heard Adam and Eve ate an apple? Oh, we hear it all the time. I've got three wonderful children. We've got children's Bibles. Adam and Eve ate an apple. It wasn't an apple. It was a real fruit. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what did that fruit look like? We simply have no idea. But we oftentimes joke that the way it's drawn in here looks like a hand grenade. That would have, they should have known something was going on with that, right? But see, it's because of man's sin that death and suffering came into the world. It's our fault. 
It's our fault that death and suffering came into the world. But see, the punishment from an infinite God is an infinite punishment. We deserve to die. Two and a half chapters, the Bible should have been done. But you know what? We serve a God of grace and a God of love and a God of mercy. And out of his love and out of his mercy, he basically gave us a grace period. Look what the Lord did in Genesis 3, 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. You see, originally when Adam and Eve sinned, they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. They went and they took fig leaves and they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings. But that wasn't good enough. The punishment for sin was death. So the solution had to involve death. Genesis 3, 21. Garments of skin. The Lord sacrificed animals to cover that sin. But the punishment from an infinite God is an infinite punishment. Are animals infinite? No. The best they could do was cover that sin. They could never take away that sin. What we needed was a perfect, infinite sacrifice that could take the infinite punishment from an infinite God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God who is infinite, he could take that punishment. You see, this is why Jesus had to step into history. It goes all the way back to the events in Genesis chapter 3. Now, we have no idea what kind of animals it was that the Lord sacrificed. In our children's books and a lot of our illustrations, we oftentimes picture it as a lamb, just as a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, who is called the Lamb of God, who stepped into history to take away the sins of the world. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. You see, this is why Jesus had to step into history. But see, I've had people say, but what about the millions of years? Wasn't there millions of years of, of, of death and things like that? You know, people are looking at the same rock layers. Do you guys realize that the idea of millions and billions of years comes from rock layers? People assume that those rock layers will lay down slowly and gradually over millions of years. What biblical event should you think of when you see rock layers? The flood of Noah's day. That's exactly right. But in the late 17, early 1800s, people started saying, hey, let's look at rock layers from an entirely different perspective. Let's do it by leaving the Bible out of it. Now, as soon as you leave the Bible out of it, you're leaving God out of it, which means God is no longer the ultimate authority. So by default, who is the authority? Mankind becomes the authority. So people started looking at those rock layers saying, how, how long would it take for those rock layers to form? Well, they could watch them all day long. They weren't forming very fast. So they're thinking, wow, these could be annual layers. This could take millions of years. Well, that idea really started to catch fire. And when it did, a lot of Christians didn't know how to respond to it. What they should have done was stand on the authority of the word of God and say, no, 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 there's a global flood in here. That would account for the vast majority of those rock layers. Of course, we've had rock layers since then from volcanoes and local catastrophes and so on. But they didn't. Instead, they bought into the secular idea of millions of years. And they started saying, okay, okay, well, let's take this millions of years and let's try to put it in the Bible somewhere. Where can we put it? And so they start going, huh, you can't fit millions of years between Mary and Jesus or between David and Nathan, you just can't fit millions of years in there. You can't fit them in those genealogies. So you have to go back before Adam. And all of a sudden, Genesis chapter one became one of the most controversial chapters in the entire Bible. We had some theologians declare, maybe you can have millions of years of time out here before time began. That doesn't make any sense. A Scottish theologian named Thomas Chalmers popularized gap theory where he said, take Genesis one, one, and one, two, separate it out, put all the long ages in there, and just keep going. Sometimes that's associated with a Luciferian fall or a Luciferian flood. Then we have progressive creation or day age. They take the days of creation, stretch them out to be millions and billions of years long. Sometimes the days overlap. Sometimes they rearrange the days. And then you have theistic evolution or its variant of framework hypothesis where you take Genesis chapter 1, all the way up to Genesis chapter 11, throw it out, replace it with evolution, and just pick up with Abraham. But what are you doing to the Bible? You're starting to reinterpret it all because of man's ideas about the rock layers. What are you doing to Genesis? Well, you're starting to reinterpret it all because of man's ideas about the rock layers. What are you doing to Genesis chapter 1, the foundation of the rest of the book of Genesis? You're starting to reinterpret it all because of man's ideas about the rock layers. But you know what? You try to mix those two together, you've got a lot of problems, don't you? I've listed a number of them here. Uh, in the long age scenario, you have the sun before the earth. You start with the Bible, you have the earth before the sun. Long ages, dry land before the sea. According to the Bible, we have the sea before dry land. And we can continue and continue in land reptiles before birds. According to the Bible, you have birds before land reptiles. <laughs> sun before the plants. Plants before the sun. You see, we can go on and on and on with things like this. But I want to point out a big problem here. People look at those rock layers. And what do you see in those rock layers? 
Well, you see evidence of death, don't you? Millions and billions of years of death. And people were trying to take that and force fit it into Genesis chapter 1. You see, they're trying to force that in there. You don't read it from the text. They're taking man-made ideas and forcing it into Genesis chapter 1. And then they're reinterpreting Genesis chapter 1 to get all these various views. Or in fact, it's Genesis 1 to 11 for the most part. They're reinterpreting. You get progressive creation, gap theory, theistic evolution, whatever it might be. But what did God declare at the end of Genesis chapter 1? God saw all that he had made and it was very good. See, that would make death very good. That'd make suffering very good. That'd make extinctions very good. That'd make eating liver very... Oh, wait. <clears throat> Back to that one. <laughs> you know, we find cancer and tumors in the fossil age. I've had family members die of cancer. Friends, that's not very good. Not very good at all. If Lucifer would have fallen between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, oh, that'd make sin very good. That'd make Satan himself very good. Satan could not have fallen until after this declaration. I seriously doubt it was on day seven. God sanctified that day, made it holy, but very soon afterwards. You know, we find thorns in the fossil layers. One of the lower layers, uh, the Devonian level, named, named for Devonshire, England, where it outcrops it. In the evolutionary scenario, it's supposedly 400 million years old. We find thorns in there. Huh. When did thorns and thistles come about? After Adam and Eve sinned against God. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee. Which means that thorn and that rock layer and the rock layer sitting on top of it had to come after Adam and Eve sinned against God. Flood of Noah's day makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You see, I want you to realize though, there's a battle over these two different histories. A biblical history and a secular history. Either God is the ultimate authority or man is the ultimate authority. See, in the, in the humanistic worldview, millions and billions of years lead up to man's existence. But if we start with the Bible, a perfect God makes a perfect creation and it's because of man's sin that death and suffering came into this world. But take heart, that's why Jesus stepped into history to save us from sin and death. But if you try to take the man-made ideas about those rock layers and force fit it into Genesis chapter one, you're tarnishing God's statement that everything was very good. Now I've had a lot of Christians give a terrible answer when it comes to things like death and suffering in today's culture. We might think of the tornadoes that hit Joplin, Missouri recently, just devastating down there. Or Hurricane Katrina. You might think of the, the uh, earthquake and the tsunami and the nuclear aftermath, what happened in Japan here, here or maybe 9-11 or whatever it might have been. But friends, a lot of people cried out and said, why did God make the world like this? And a lot of Christians just say, I just did deal with it. That is a terrible answer. We need to go back to the Bible. God created it perfect. It's because of man's sin that the world is like this. That's all the more reason to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. See, so often we want to blame God. Some God of love you are. See, we want to blame God. Is God the one to blame? Not at all. What we need to do is step back and say, whoa, it's because of man's sin that the world is like this. Romans 5, 12 what we need to do is get on our knees and repent. Say, Lord, forgive us too. I've had people say, well, hold on a second. You know, Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin entered the world uh, through one man and, and death through sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. Why are we stuck in this sin, cursed and broken world? It's all Adam and Eve's fault. Friends, we've all sinned too, haven't we? Every one of us. I just think Adam lived 930 years and has one sin on record. <laughs> I've blown that out of the water. But to summarize this, corruption. It explains why we sin and why we wear clothes. I appreciate you all adhering to that again. It explains why there's death. It explains why we need a savior in the first place. It explains why we need a new heavens and a new earth. This one's cursed, this one's broken. You can read more about that in Romans chapter eight. It explains why we suffer. Ladies, is this true when it comes to childbearing? I see some of you nodding, and I see some of you going, thanks for bringing that one up. <laughs> you know what? My wife has given birth three times. You ladies are absolutely incredible. But you know this was stated to the woman. It was stated to Eve back in Genesis, and yet it's been passed along, you see. But it's true. The Bible explains why the world's like that. So what happens? Adam and Eve get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and they start having children, right? We have Cain, Abel, Seth. We have Cain's wife in there. Genesis 5-4 said Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. So who originally married who? Yeah, brothers married sisters. I've got two wonderful sisters, but friends, that's not gonna happen. <laughs> but see, originally that was okay. 
It wasn't until the time of Moses in Leviticus 18 that God said, uh-uh, no more close intermarriage. Abraham married his half-sister, if you remember. So it was acceptable uh, in early times. Well, at any rate, the population kept growing. But did people get better and people get worse? According to the Bible, they got worse. In fact, it's very, very bad, didn't they? Uh, if we look at Genesis chapter six, I put uh, verse uh, five and 11 in here. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. We think of politics when we see verses like that, don't we? <laughs> Just kidding, I had to throw that one out there. Genesis chapter uh, six, verse 11. The earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. I've had people say, but why did God kill those innocent people in the flood? Were they innocent? No, first off, we've all fallen short, but this shows how bad it got. The violence was absolutely and utterly intense. I mean, imagine the murder, the rape, the child sacrifice, a whole host of things going on. But the Lord was very patient with them. Gave him a 120-year countdown. And that gives us the third sea of history, the catastrophe, the flood of Noah's day. Genesis 7:12 says, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, we were hoping to find out a little bit more about the chronology of the flood, but from a big picture look, this 40 days and nights of rain, that's just part of the flood. The flood was over, over a year. Wow. An immense amount of time being in a, cooped up in a big box, right? I'm sure they were ready to get off the ark. I mean, imagine if I took you guys and locked you up with your family for a year. You'd be ready to get out of there too, wouldn't you? But imagine the violence before the flood and a violent flood that then came upon them. But I want you to kind of relate this to the world. You know, we live in an area here where there's lots of cuts in the hill. You see all these rock layers. And as you're driving past them, sometimes we don't even notice them. Sometimes we go out on fossil hunts and we find these neat fossils. Oh, look at this, this is really... We need to step back and say, this is a judgment upon sin. We need to think in terms of these rock layers relate to the flood of Noah's day. Because in today's culture, anyway, there's a battle over two different histories. One history that looks at rock layers, for example, at the Grand Canyon, say, oh, a lot of time and a little bit of water did this. Or you can say, well, a lot of water and a little bit of time. See, two different views of history. I've had people say, well, hold it. These rock layers, it, it takes millions of years to form rock. I like to ask the question, what experiments have been run over millions of years that verify it takes millions of years to form rock? Ah, there's never been a single experiment run over millions of years. Not a single one. Yet we have examples of rapid rock. Take a look at this clock in a rock. That didn't take millions of years to form, did it? Just the right conditions. You can see where the rock is formed in and out of the gears there. I've had people say, but it takes millions of years to form fossils. Well, why do we have fossils that show that, hey, it looks like these things were laid down rather quickly. I mean, you look at this thing, it didn't even get a chance to finish its dinner, did it? That's how rapidly that thing was buried. So did it take millions of years to form it or just the right conditions? You see, we could go into that in great amounts of detail. But see, keep in mind that people look at those rock layers from two different views of history. They're looking at it as, oh, is this millions of years slowly laid down? Those rock layers slowly laid down over millions of years? Or is it from the flood? You see, many of us have been uh, taught to, to look at these geologic timescales. We see it in children's books. We see it in textbooks. I grew up with stuff like this. And usually what they do is they take these different rock layers and they assign millions and millions of years to these. This is how long this rock layer seemed to have formed. I was taught that as though it was an absolute fact. Don't even think about questioning it. But when we look at those rock layers in light of the flood, boom, where's the millions of years go? It virtually disappears, doesn't it? So you know what? We can look at dinosaur fossils, which are found in there. And how old are they? About 4,350 years ago, isn't it? Yeah. But we need to look at those rock layers in light of what the Bible teaches. Because God is the ultimate authority. It is God's history that is true. I've had people object say, well, where did all the water come from? There's not enough water to cover Mount Everest. Sorry, that can't happen. Well, you know what? If we take the mountains and bring them down and the ocean basins and bring them up to where they're about level, we have enough water to cover the entire earth about 1.6 miles deep. Do you realize that? 70% of the earth is still covered with water. But think about this, 1.6 miles deep. So, was the mountain shifting with valleys? Yeah, absolutely. Psalms 104, verses 8 and 9. It starts off as a creation psalm and it kind of switches, goes through time. Psalms 104, verses 8 and 9 says, The mountains rose and the valleys sank down. 
to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. And that's in reference back to Genesis 9, 11. Remember the rainbow promise? The waters will not return to cover the entire earth to kill all life. That makes perfect sense. And I could talk forever on the flood, Noah's Ark, and so on, but I want to go ahead and summarize this because we got a long ways to go in this talk. But to summarize this, the catastrophe, it explains why there are fossil layers. It explains why there are high mountains. It explains geological features such as the Grand Canyon and the Ice Age. In fact, is a, a most gracious believe there was an Ice Age that followed the flood. It was triggered by the flood uh, with such rare conditions. It explains that God does judge sin. And it also explains that God provides a means of salvation. Okay, so Noah's family comes off the ark. The Lord says, be fruitful, fill the earth. And what happens? Ah, Noah's descendants say, hey, how about we come together and build this tower and not be scattered? They were trying to defy God's command. What happens when you defy God? Oh, he comes down and confuses your language, of course. And that brings us to the fourth sea of history, which is Genesis chapter 10 and 11. The confusion. Genesis eleven nine 9 says, Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Explains why we speak different languages, doesn't it? Now, we have a lot of languages out there, don't we? Yeah, we do. And not all the languages we have today came right out of Babel. Now, don't let that scare you. What it is is they've kind of changed a little bit. For example, you may have recognized that Ken and Steve Ham's uh, English is a little bit different than mine. Those deep southern accented fellas. <laughs> and I have what's called a hick accent. I use words like wash, critter, crick. That's a different discussion. We could be on that one for a long time. But see, notice how languages are changing. Uh, even English is changing. English is actually classed as a German language. And I'll talk a little bit more about this uh, in the session on the Tower of Babel this Friday. But the Babel dispersion. People start to go to various parts of the world. Some of them probably went by boat. Noah and his sons were master shipbuilders. Some of them probably walked and went to various places. And you know what? They took their history with them. Do you realize that cultures all over the world have flood legends? And a lot of these have common similarities from the Polynesians to Egypt to Italy to the North Americans. They all have flood legends all over the place. It's absolutely fascinating. They also took their building projects with them. Ah, isn't that neat? We find ziggurats and pyramids and mounds all over the world to various places from uh, uh, you go to Central America, you go to China, you go to North America, wherever it might be. We find these things all over the place. But here's a powerful teaching point from the Tower of Babel. Babel, Babel. Whatever. One race. If we all go back to Adam and Eve, how many races are there? It's only one race. Well, why, are, why do people look so different? Some people are darker. Some people are skinnier. Or some people are lighter. Some people are, are, are wider. <laughs> Can I say wider? <laughs> Get away with <laughs> But you know what? We see variation, don't we? We see some people. I see some people with some great flowing hair out there. I see people without any hair out there. I see people losing hair. I can't complain. I'm losing it too. That's a sign of the curse, right? You know, I've had people tell me, oh yeah, you're in your 30s. You're, you must be feeling great. No, I don't. My back hurts. My hair's falling out. It's turning gray. I can't, can't dunk a basketball anymore. Yeah, I used to be able to do that. <laughs> Not anymore. I'm lucky if I can hit the rim. But you see, there's variation. People who ended up in Europe took jeans for lighter skin. People who ended up in Africa took jeans for darker skin. People who went to the Orient took jeans for an almond-shaped eye. But friends, we are all related there is only one race, which means we're here at a family reunion. I know what you're thinking. You're like, great, I'm, I'm related to him. <laughs> but it also means that we're all sinners and all in need of a savior. But let's look a little bit closer here at these uh, uh, skin tones because this is one of them that really, really messes with a lot of people out there. They think, well, how can you get kids with, with really light skin? How can you get people with really dark skin? Friends, it's basic genetics. Don't let me scare you. But let's say Adam and Eve have the genetics for really light and really dark skin. In one generation, they could have had children that were really light to really dark. You know what? We find examples of that uh, even today. Uh, for example, these two beautiful little twins here, one's dark hair, dark skin, dark eyes. The other's blonde hair, blue eyes, lighter skin. It's just uh, absolutely cute but both the parents had a dark and a light parent. Uh, we look at this uh, next set of twins down here. One light, one dark. That was a German and a Jamaican got together, and there, there we have that. But I've had people say, but, well, but what about that skin color? I mean, one of them's black, one of them's white. Really? There's only one color for the most part, 
And it's uh, dominated by a pigment in our skin called melanin. Some of us have genetics that make more melanin. We have other people have, say, make less melanin. But friends, there's only really one color. It's just shades that are a little bit different. Some of us have a darker brown. Some of us have a lighter brown. Friends, I'm not white. You look at your page that you're holding there, that's white. If I look like that, call an ambulance. (laughs) There's a problem. But there's really only one color. Now, as people go to various parts of the world, they took that particular gene pool with them to various parts of the world, which explains why we have people uh, that dominate with various genes in different parts of the world. But I've had people say, hold on a second, though. What about those missing links? Well, I like that they put the word missing in there because that's what's, what's going on. We have missing links. Friends, let's just break this down very easily. I've had people say, well, what about the Australopithecines? Or what about uh, Homo erectus or, or Homo ergaster? So they throw, love to throw fancy terms out there, don't they? Sometimes we can't even pronounce them. But you know what? They're either ape or they're human. That's what we're finding. They're either ape or they're human. But see, there, there's three ways people like to make an ape man. You know how they try to do it? But let me kind of show you. They try to take parts of a human and parts of an ape. Let's say I had a box. And let's say they find a bone out here. What's this bone go to? I'm throw it in the box. And we find another bone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Throw it in the box. Well, after a while, you get a bunch of bones in that box. And they go, oh, let's build a missing link. Well, it's probably got some bones of human in there. It's probably got some bones of ape in there, you see. That's how they make one set of missing links. Well, then you can take, you can take apes and try to make it look like a human. Ah, that's what they do with uh, things like Lucy, which is an ape. They try to make it look like a human. The other way is you take a human and you try to make it look like an ape. But friends, that comes from a false view of history. What we need to do is start with the Bible. There's an ape kind, there's a human kind. We don't get one from the other. But people try to make missing links out of that stuff. You know what uh, is, I, I've always found interesting? When we find things like Lucy or these various Neanderthals or what not, Neanderthals are human. Whenever we find these, do you realize they're found in what's called post-flood sediment? You know what that means? That means that Noah was around before any of those were even buried. So how can they be missing links when Noah was already around? Interesting, isn't it? Well, let's take a look a little bit more at some of these people who came out of the Tower of Babel. But we have uh, different descendants of Japheth, Shem, and Ham, and then they had sons, and then they had some, some sons, and so on and so forth. I like to trace those people out. Where did they go in the world? Which different people group came out of who? It's pretty fascinating. And the reason I like to do that is because, friends, I'm a mutt. I have some of everything in me, it seems like. I've got some Irish, English, Dutch, German, Portuguese, you name it. It's there. So I probably came through just about all of Noah's grandsons one way or another, right? Uh, just to give you an example, I traced out Tubal and I threw it on this uh, particular talk. Uh, Tubal, we still have the Tubal River up here. If you can uh, kind of follow this, then we have Tobolsk. Uh, that's named for Tubal. Uh, we also have Tobal there in uh, uh, the southern part of uh, Asian Binar. Uh, all the different Iberian groups. Iberia here, we have the Caucasian Iberia. The Italics came out of there and even the people from Ireland uh, came out of there. Ibernia kind of comes from uh, the word Iberia kind of uh, related to that. So if you guys have some Irish in it, you probably go back to Tubal. Pretty fascinating, isn't it? Well, we could talk all day on this. But how did people get to various parts of the world? Did they go by boat? Yeah, some of them probably did. Like I said, Noah and his sons were master shipbuilders. But most creationists believe there was an ice age that followed the flood. Well, what happens in an ice age? You take a lot of water out of the ocean and you put it on land. So your ocean level drops and it exposes land bridges. It's possible people walked all the way to the Americas, all the way to Australia, all the way to places like Japan or England. They could have made it there. But I've had people say, but could they have made it all the way across some of those oceans? Yeah, I could see them going along some coast, going from island to island. Could they, have, could they have made it all the way across, say, the Atlantic? Well, there was an experiment done in 1969 and 1970 with Egyptian reed boats to see if they could pass the, the Atlantic. And a RA-1 uh, set sail uh, in 1969. It left Safi, Morocco, and after 2,600 miles, ran into a big storm, so they kind of <laughs> said, okay, we're done with this one. RA-2 set sail in 1970, left Safi, Morocco, and landed in Barbados in 57 days. So even an Egyptian reed boat could have passed the, the Atlantic. So uh, I'm sure plenty of other ships, especially some of the intriguing ships of antiquity, which show such brilliance of mankind, uh, could have easily transversed uh, various oceans. 
Well, let's go ahead and summarize the confusion. It explains why we speak different languages, and it explains why we look a little bit different. I mean, I see some tall people, some short people. Like I said, I see some bald people out there. Yes, the, the light is shining right off your foreheads. See, I can use bald jokes now because it's going. It's going fast on me, so just wait. It's going to happen. Uh, it also explains why there are ziggurats, mounds, and pyramids all over the world. It explains that we're all related, which means we're all in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact is, that brings us to our next scene in history, Christ. Now, there's a big jump of history, isn't there, here, between confusion in Genesis chapter 11 and Christ stepping into Israel. Let's face it, there's a lot there, right? So what I've done, if you really wanna use this in some of your home teachings, I've got what's called the 12 seas of history. If you wanna throw a few more in there, here we go. After confusion, we have the covenant with Abraham or the call of Abraham. Uh, you can have commandments with Moses. You can have the crown when the Israelites asked for a king. Or you can have the captivity when the Israelites kept being bad and went into captivity. And then here after cross, you can have Christian era or church age, however you'd like to do that. Now let's just run through from the Tower of Babel up to Christ just to give you a big picture look at some of the, what's going on in the Old Testament. As people start to scatter around the world, we have the call of Abraham. And Abraham is, is called out of his land. And then we have uh, Isaac, you might uh, think of the, the sacrificing of Isaac, but it didn't actually happen. The Lord said, stop. Then we have uh, Jacob. He's renamed Israel. He has 12 sons. You might think of Joseph being sent down to Egypt. And he rises in power to be the second most powerful person in Egypt. And the Israelites end up down there because of a great famine. Basically, he was there to save them. Well, then a Pharaoh comes to power that doesn't know Joseph. And the Israelites are then enslaved with an extremely harsh type of slavery, being forced to build a whole host of projects. And the Lord raises up Moses to bring them out of Egypt. You might think of the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. The Lord delivers the 10 commandments. The Israelites were still being disobedient. And so the Lord says, fine, you're gonna wander in the desert for 40 years. So they're wandering in the desert for 40 years. Joshua leads them into the promised land. And really, this is the time of the judges. Moses was actually the first judge. But the time of the judges, you might think of uh, Deborah or Samson. You, know, my, you might think of some of those uh, uh, instances in Judges. Well, then the Israelites say, we want a king. In essence, they were rejecting God as their king. So the Lord gave him Saul, who reigned for 40 years. Then David, who was a king after the Lord's own heart, though he made his mistakes as well. Then we have Solomon. By the end of Solomon's life, was the Lord happy with him? No, he'd been led astray by his many wives, started sacrificing to false gods and so on. So the Lord said, I'm gonna split the kingdom from you, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. The southern kingdom Judah followed with Solomon's lineage with Rehoboam. We have some good kings, we have some bad kings throughout this time. I think of Hezekiah, a good king. But the Israelites just kept doing bad stuff, so the Lord kept sending them prophets. You might think of Elijah or Elisha or Isaiah. Later on, you got Jeremiah, but you know what? The Israelites finally went into captivity. The northern kingdom to Assyria, the southern kingdom later on with uh, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, the Babylonians. You might think of the time of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And then finally, the Israelites were permitted to go back. And you might think of Nehemiah rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Ezra the priest. You might think of the last prophets, Malachi being the last one. The Israelites still weren't listening. So what happened? The Lord had 400 years of silence. Just to give you an idea what happened in there, Alexander the Great came in and conquered everyone. So Greek became the common language, the trade language. The New Testament is written in Greek as a result. Then we have the Romans who came in and, well, they conquered everybody. And the Romans are in power when Christ steps into history. And that brings us to our fifth sea in history. Philippians 2.8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Who is Jesus? Who was he? Who is he? He's the creator, according to John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. He's witnessed by miracles. He's the suffering savior, but he's the resurrected victor over death. He's the coming king and judge of all. Sinless, fully God and yet fully man. Hebrews 4.15 requates him as our high priest. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was sinless. That's what we expected 
from a perfect God. You might think uh, of Jesus' life, the miraculous conception, the temptation by Satan. Now think of this. 40 days and nights he fasted and he was tempted directly by Satan. Now compare Jesus to, say, some other religious leaders. You might think of Buddha who sat under a Bodhi tree. Yeah, he sat under a Bodhi tree. And he came to enlightenment and he believed it. You might think of Joseph Smith who went out in the wilderness and said he was visited by the angel Moroni and he believed it. You might think of Muhammad who went to a cave at Hegira, thought he was visited by an evil spirit later on, thought it was an angel and he believed it. Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights of fasting was tempted directly by Satan and three times he said, it is written. Wow. The Sermon on the Mount. I love to see pastors just get up and read the Sermon on the Mount sometimes. That's an incredible sermon, isn't it? Feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. This was just counting the men. Raise Lazarus from the dead after four days. People should have known he had power over life and death right there. You might think of Jesus in the Last Supper, which we still celebrate. You might think of Jesus being called the Lamb of God. And why is he called the Lamb of God? Remember, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. Remember, Hebrews 9.22 says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see, Christ stepped into history and he died on a cross for us. I'm gonna go ahead and go into the sixth C of history. Christ and cross are very much uh, related. They're right there together in history. But it's significant, Christ's work on the cross. So we wanted to have a whole C specifically for that. You see, Jesus is called the last Adam. We can't have a last Adam without a first Adam, right? Because of the first Adam, we all die. But in the second Adam, in the last Adam, in Christ, all should be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 22. See, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three, to the events in there when Adam and Eve sinned against God. And there, we picture it as a lamb, just as a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, we've all fallen short. Romans 6.23, you probably all know this one. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, when Jesus stepped into history, he died according to the scriptures. Acts 10.40, but God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly. Did Christ remain dead? That is the power of the resurrection. It is all for Christ, isn't it? We talk about history. We talk about theology. We talk about Genesis 1 to 11. But friends, let's not forget the big picture that this is for Christ. All honor and glory should go to him. To summarize Christ and cross, it explains that Christ came to save us. While we were still sinners, remember, he came to save us. It explains how Christ conquered sin and death. It explains why we need to tell others about Christ. We don't want to keep this to ourselves. We want to share it with others. When we look at people all around the world, we need to remember they're our relatives. They need Christ too. We should want to go tell others about him. It explains that we have something to look forward to. And it explains how much God cares. When Jesus Christ stepped into history to die for us. And that brings us to our final C in history. The consummation. This is what we look forward to, friends. That fulfillment. Wow. But what I want you to get is the history in the Bible is true. You know what? We've just answered a whole host of things, haven't we? We've looked back at the Bible's history and it explains the world. And because that history is true, the message of the gospel is also true. And we as Christians, we have something to look forward to. Revelation 21, 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Amen? Amen. Revelation 22, 3. And there shall be no more curse. Wow. That goes back to Genesis 3. Amen? Revelation 21, 27. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is talking of heaven. Amen? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? This is from our children's book, A is for Adam.
This is a powerful book, especially for children. It leads up to the gospel starting in Genesis. But you know what? It's good for us as adults as a reminder, right? It's a good reason for us to be motivated to go out and teach people that the Bible's history is true. And you know what? The Bible's future is also true. We look forward to a new heavens and a new earth in a consummate form. No more death or suffering. We look forward to that. We have access to the tree of life, which we didn't have access to since Genesis chapter 3. Forever in perfection with Christ. And cursed will be removed. Friends, we have something to look forward to. But notice what's going on in the world. There is a battle over this history with the world's history. This secular history, what does it have to look forward to? Nothing. We as Christians have something to look forward to. Now, I'm assuming most people who come to this conference are Christians. There may be some people who are not Christians. If you're not a Christian here, we welcome you here. We hope you're having a great time. But we also hope you're challenged to a certain degree, especially to consider the claims of Christ. Because friends, that's what this is all about. We're not here just to teach people about creation. We want them to see that the Bible is true. The message of the gospel is also true. We want to see people one to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so often, many of our Christians have fallen short. We're here to influence the world. And what so many Christians have done is they, they buy into that philosophy that you don't need the Bible and they say, well, let's leave that out of it. Let's leave God as the authority out of it. And what happens is we're letting the world influence us. It's time for us to get back to the authority of the word of God, starting with the very first verse. It's time for us to start with the Bible's history and use it when we preach the gospel. But we ourselves need to start looking at the world in light of the Bible's history. When we drive down the road, you see the rock layers, I want you to think in terms of seven seas of history. Think of the Bible's history. When, when you uh, see dinosaurs, I want you to think in terms of the Bible's history. What day were dinosaurs created? Day six, land animals. There you go, you're starting with the Bible. When, when you see uh, different subjects, whether it's biology, geology, physics, uh, anthropology, astronomy, whatever it might be, friends, I want you to think in terms of the Bible's history. Think in terms of God being the ultimate authority. When you see other people, I want you to think in terms of the Bible's history. Friends, there's a whole harvest of people out there just waiting to be saved. And you know what? We as Christians sometimes don't know the Bible very well. I want to encourage you to get into the Bible, know the Bible, teach the Bible, especially to people who are unbelievers. Because when they start to realize, hey, the Bible's true, then they start going, wow, that means... That means that all this is true. The Bible's morality, the Bible's theology, the Bible's... When they realize that, it's so powerful. Colossians 2.8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Friends, we're commanded to stand on the authority of the word of God. Don't buy into the traditions of man. But you know what? So many people have. And so what we need to do is teach them why that view is wrong and why they need to start with the Bible.